What is up, everybody? I am super excited for today's episode with Ryan Meeks. This is one of the best interviews I've ever done, and I do not say that lightly. I'm going to just do a brief intro on Ryan so then we can get into the show. Ryan was the head minister of East Lake Church, which he founded in 2005 and ran for many years. It became one of the fastest growing churches in America, and they were actually featured in Time Magazine for the church's public affirmation and inclusion of the LGBT community. He ended up leaving the church as he was called in a new direction, which you will hear about in today's episode, which we also dive into Ryan's healing journey, overcoming cancer, what he does today as a coach, and how he guides and facilitates profound psychedelic healing and journeys for people. Speaking of which, psychedelics is a topic we explore today and one I will continue speaking about on the podcast as I'm really passionate about psychedelics and plant medicine, um, about their healing potential and potential for just personal growth and actualization. And I do feel called to just put a disclaimer that we're not promoting the use of these substances and that, as always, they should be treated with the utmost care, reverence, respect, and intention. Okay, that being said, guys and gals, you are in for a treat today. So buckle up and enjoy today's conversation with Ryan Meeks. I know the last time we chatted, you said you're a big reader. Lots of philosophy. Like, Have you yeah. always been that way? Like since you were younger? Um, I I think um, temperament wise, yes. Like I'm always interested in the bigger questions. I was journaling regularly at a young age, like junior high. I was, you know, uh, every day writing down like my inner experience. Wow. Um, and it's kind of a sad story because all my journals got destroyed when I was 27, I think, and a flood in my basement. Anyway, oh. I didn't realize they'd gotten wet and it was just like a forest of mold. Oh. <laughs> They're just ruined. Um, but uh, out of necessity for it vocationally, I started reading um, just out of interest and uh, interest to grow, mm-hmm. you know, personally and my uh, vocationally and then as a leader. And then just because of my interest in spirituality and like a structure of meaning that works for my life. So some ways I say it is like I read out of desperation, like I need answers. And yeah. so I'm going to go get them, not wait for them to sort of befall me. And the quest for truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what was the age where you realized you wanted to become a minister? Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know I you also mentioned you always had a knack for communication and speaking. Yeah. Did you realize that like as a kid? Well, I, I like performing. So if you're into astrology, Leo, the sign of Leo is on my midheaven. So, okay. so like a lot of people guess that my sun sign is Leo, even though I'm a cancer, which is right next to my uh, midheaven. So I would say that at a young age, I knew I was a performer mm. in the sense of like, I like stages and I want to entertain or hold people's attention. Um, and certainly, I mean, you know, back to the thing, Mercury's right up there at my midheaven, right in Leo too, which is Mercury is about communication. Interesting. So, so there was a sense of that. Yes. But when, to answer the, the earlier part about the minister, like I didn't, my dad was a minister and I really mm-hmm. respected my dad. So there's that level of like, he's a good person. I see him as a, as a, a effective leader and someone who cares about the well being of others. But I never was thinking, oh, I want to do this. In fact, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a forest ranger. No way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, forever. 
You were outdoors uh, a lot. I love nature. I love the Pacific Northwest. I love trees and backpacking and, you know, naked swimming in mountain lakes and that kind of Doesn't stuff. Doesn't get better than yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I didn't realize that a lot of, and no disrespect to rangers, but a lot of what they do is like custodian work of the forest. Mm-hmm. I wanted to like care for and nurture and, and, and take people into the wilderness. And oh. that's a different thing altogether. But I thought that's what rangers did back then. <laughs> you know, it's funny and we're clearly not taking this podcast in a linear direction, but I just (laughs) have to say that what you just said and and what you've shared with me about what you're doing in psychedelic therapy for people, you just said, I want to take people into the wilderness and nurture them. That to me is like a perfect metaphor for what you're doing for people in the space of plant medicine and psychedelic, creating a safe place for them to go into the the wilderness of their own psyche and soul. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, bumbling, bumbling my way there at 42 years old, starting to see how the disparate pieces of my life journey start oh they've all been pointing in this similar direction of like mm-hmm. yeah how do you how do you help cultivate a space for people to you know dive into the mystery of nature and psyche and um discover and cultivate their own wholeness mm-hmm. in a way that that mirrors or at least um fits into the way nature thinks and operates mm. you know rather than some I don't know, very artificial human construct. I think mm-hmm. I agree that I'm not sure who this comes from, perhaps Bill Plotkin, but we need to begin to think the way that nature works. And so, yeah, it's just funny. To, you know, I, wanted to, I love nature. My grandfather taught me to love the outdoors and to walk slowly on the earth. And seeing that, you know, later in life, of like, oh, I want to do these things. And, and, um, putting those things together has been an interesting part of the last couple of years for sure. But mm. I don't think I, you know, made a decision to pursue vocational ministry work. Yeah. Until I think I must've been 23 or so, which I guess is pretty young, but I had been working with students and I've been a musician my whole life. And, really? And yeah. Where did you, I know you play guitar. Is that your yeah. main instrument? Uh, singing and playing guitar, yeah. Cool. So I like, you know, as a kid, I had bands, um, junior high, high school bands. And then in my late teens, early 20s, I was into like, you know, sort of that singer songwriter 90s. I was, it, you know, I was graduate high school in 1997. So it was like very Counting Crows, post grunge, singer songwriter, folksy stuff, gotcha. you know, that kind of action. Did a lot of that stuff. Um, so anyway, all of that sort of dovetailed into like, Oh, this is functional or these skill sets work in the world of um, religion, Mm -hmm. at least in the one that I had, you know, had been formative in my own growth. And so leveraging those things and then realizing that my dad would probably be the number one person in my life who would, I guess, pour into my life in an apprentice way. Like who would really give me time to like Mm -hmm. sit and ask questions and be in meetings and watch someone lead at a high level because my dad pastored a mega church, a couple different mega churches as I was growing up. He, he, oh, gotcha, gotcha. So he wasn't just a small town church pastor, which deep respect to those guys. You know, it's a different style of work, but I was interested in this like large scale, high level leadership, big platform. How do you lead large groups of people? Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I followed in that because I knew I could get the kind of attention, um, one-on-one coaching from my dad that I would never get anywhere yeah. else. Yeah. It's interesting connecting those dots. Like you have your father as like a leader and role model in that yeah. space. Yeah. You have your own just deep quest for truth that you've had since you're a kid. Yeah. And you also have this talent of singing 
orating, communicating, which is all just the perfect, yeah, perfect combination. Yeah, comfortable on stage is certainly helpful if you want to you know. <laughs> inspire the masses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would yeah, say so. Sure. And so, what was it like in the beginning? I mean, you grew one of the fastest churches in history. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, at least one of the fastest growing churches in America uh, between 2008 and 2010. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is wild. I mean, I was reading <laughs> up on you last night. I watched oh. this video on Upworthy. It was like out of over 100,000 views on you. Okay. Yeah. Um, you were featured in Time, which I can't wait to go into like um, the specificity of that. Mm-hmm. But first of all, like, what did it start out? Like, you're just getting some friends over to... You Do know, you mean starting a church? Yeah. Like, yeah. how does one start a church? Yeah. Well, yeah. So spoiler alert, like I'm not even a Christian anymore. So I have to like cycle back into states of consciousness that I no longer inhabit to remember Mm. what that was like. (laughs) So, you know, my wife and I met when we were 14 and 13, started dating when we were 16 and 17. And uh, my daughter's 21 now. So uh, we were a young family in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, my daughter was born when I was when I was 21. Yeah, just barely turned 21. Wow. So we were like, when all my friends were like partying and, you know, living the young single life, like I was deep into family mm-hmm. life and raising my daughter. And um, although we lived, as I told you, in these big frat houses, full a bunch of guys in my family was in the bottom floor. So it was like, it was definitely party central, but it was, I had different priorities in mind. Yeah. And I know that my wife and I were observing how, you know, we had grown up in sort of a culturally liberal version of evangelical Christianity, which mm-hmm. is kind of like, <laughs> I, this sounds a little uh, deriding, or if that's a word. Um, it's like cool jeans and hip, like, hey, love everybody. But it's also has this like fundamentalism that's undergirding it, mm-hmm. which I was unaware of. But so I felt like we were like the really liberal version of Christianity, which yeah. of course is not the case. But um, what we were noticing was everything that was um, successful was really for boomers. Mm. Um, and they're like basically anyone from my generation was uh, relegated to some sort of like Thursday night event in this weird room in the in the facility. Whereas mm. like we were becoming adults, you know, we were... Um, graduating college and so we were just like interested in what if what about something for us you know Mm -hmm. and i remember at night maybe 19 i was i had the thought like i should start a church and then i was like that's insane i'm 19 years old you know but only a couple years later um after having done some bible college and and worked at other churches and then and then apprenticed with my father at his church in san diego we were like, let's do this. Like we were up visiting some friends in Seattle. None of our friends were attending church anywhere. They're mm-hmm. all good people who wanted to live well. Um, and so I think that's where it started was just like we saw a need, a gap. Like people are interested in living lives of meaning and purpose. Um, I had experienced a lot of benefit from being involved in you know Christian community. Mm-hmm. And but there was nothing that was really connecting us. We felt like we were going to our parents' events. Interesting. And do you think, did you feel and do you think the people who joined, especially in the early stages, feel that there was also a, a parental pressure from like family to like maintain their faith from oh, like the sure. way they grew up? Yeah. I mean, depends on your family of origin. Yeah. Some people don't feel that, but I, but that's certainly a group of people mm-hmm. who were like, you know, sh- shoulda, you know, woulda, shoulda, or whatever. Mm-hmm. This pressure, external pressure to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, 
talk about the growth just in the early stages from yeah well i think it was kind of like a freak show at first because we were so young mm-hmm. um and just this such high energy like it basically was my wife and i and and nine friends who started it and we were meeting in houses talking about it for a while and then we just decided to have an event and 150 people showed up and it was like, well, this is cool. And they were like, give us your email. We'll tell you if we're going to do it again. Mm-hmm. And then we did it again two months later and 150 people showed up again. And we we're like, yeah, this is great. And people were already talking like we should meet weekly. Mm-hmm. And those are my first two sermons I ever preached. Like, wow. I was, That's I was quite so a show green. up, dude, for your first two. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were highly connected in the area and I'd grown up there. My wife was from the area. So it was easy to be like, hey, we're doing this thing. If you want to show up. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um. And so then we started meeting weekly uh, at a at a school, a, junior, a brand new junior high that had been built that I'd been breaking into for about three months, checking <laughs> it out because it was under construction and kind of doing the Axel Foley, you know, walk mm-hmm. in and walk around like you know what you're doing. Um, and yeah, so it just kind of started taking off, uh, t- took off pretty quickly. I think for the first few months of meeting weekly, it was it was kind of like, you know, it went 150 down to 90, down to 85, you know, it was oh, like interesting. through my amazing leadership skills and speaking, <laughs> you know, I whittled it down to a nice uh, hard 70. But um, that was just because there were people like wishing us well and showing up because like, hey, good luck, you know, mm-hmm. and then it was like, these are the people who are really here who are interested in doing something. And then we had sent out like a invite in the mail, like, hey, there's a new group of people who are doing something. They want to do something fresh. And this is who we are. If you're interested, come meet us. Mm-hmm. And then we were boom up to 200. And then from that point forward, we never stopped growing until the, the drama that we, you and I have discussed offline elsewhere, beach walks. But um, yeah, so it was like 200. Then by the end of the year, 600. And then by the mid of next year, it was like 800 and then a thousand and then 3000. And then, you know, so just kind insane of, growth. We got into a, this 70,000 square foot warehouse and and then we were in eight locations across the Seattle area. And yeah, it just started getting kind of nutty. And looking back, what do you think was like the catalyst of why, why were you guys so successful in such rapid growth? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's complicated, you know, I've done enough like different interviews and things for print and, and video. And the simplistic answer was like, you know, we had momentum, which is certainly true, but there's a lot of complex things. One, I think that it was the right time to start something for this particular generation. Like I said before, everything that was going on was for an older group. Mm -hmm. Anyone my age would have been the young people at an older people's event. So it was ripe for the the opportunity young people were looking for something at least who were interested in spirituality that was like super non-judgmental like um the other factor is even from day one i was really open about not knowing if all of this was true which is unique Mm -hmm. um because we were an evangelical christian church and when anybody hears that word especially these days it just sounds like oh i know what that means and but the truth is i never really fit very well into that even though we were in that i was really open like hey i don't know if any of these stories are true i am pragmatically taking these on as operational beliefs in my life because i want to be the best version of myself that i can be this symbol set of christian symbols works for me i know it like i know christmas and easter i know the stories and they seem to work. Like when I apply, love your neighbor as yourself, it works for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that approach, instead of like, this is the truth. And Jesus showed up in my bedroom, you know, yesterday and told me these things. Like, in fact, most of my life, I felt like a JV in junior varsity Christian. Like, mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't talk to me. Yeah. Like, I don't know. The Bible's confusing. There's a lot of weird shit in here, <laughs> you know? And 
So I think that's part of it too. Mm-hmm. People, it was just refreshing to be told at least the truth that uh, my truth, I don't know if this is true. Yeah. And you don't have to have it all together. Mm-hmm. I don't have it all together. There's no dress code here. There's no like hierarchy of who's more spiritual based on how close to the front you sit, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? I think those all contributed to a unique approach because there were other churches where you could like wear jeans. That wasn't our cute innovation. Yeah. Um, and there were other churches that had like similar style, maybe music. Ours was a little edgier, you know, or louder or whatever, but it was just geared towards young people, not just in its external, you know, accoutrement, but, but in its internal ethos, mm-hmm. like who we were on the inside or who I specifically was off stage was the same person on stage. So I didn't have a preacher voice mm-hmm. where I'm like talking to you, Jake. And then once I get on that stage, yeah. you know, and that's really common yeah. in that world of like, and I mean, that's true. You know, you're, you're a public speaker and you've seen, I'm sure many speakers who are one way off stage and one way on stage. So I think all of that contributed yeah. to, um, I think maybe if there was one more thing, it would be that the nine of us were friends who started it. And that energy of like, loving safe good hearted friendship like mm-hmm. we, we had healthy relationships with these nine people that itself was magnetic it was mm. attractive people wanted to be around people who encouraged each other cared for each other loved each other supported each other and that magnet created a, a certain type of communal vibe like a culture and because we protected that culture really well it it maintained and that kind of thing is just like it draws people in people are like is this real like i want to i want to be a part of this it's so interesting like two things you said which a one is that core community that core culture and two kind of staying true to your ethos which for you are like look i don't know if i'm right or wrong yeah. i'm going to speak what's truth i actually interviewed uh, this guy troy last week he was employee number one at volcom and oh, the parallels cool. between you guys and volcom had rapid growth yeah but it's these two parallels of like they, they had a core anti-establishment true to yourself um, ethos Uh and then the second part was like or then the community that they didn't care about how cool you were they're like if you have the vibe that we are like we want you to come join this and this is before volt like volcom's a household name now but it's the same with you guys like before you became one of the biggest churches and we're growing like rapidly it starts out with this core like you guys know who you are and like this is what you stand for Yes, absolutely. Because I don't know, again, a business principle is your people are your product. And I firmly believe like, it's one of the hiring principles I had. Like if I would go to a party this person threw, then they're eligible to be hired on my team. That's like, so funny. Because I want to have like a team of people who are like people who can throw parties. Yeah. Like, people who not just hold safe space, but who are fun, who are magnetic, attractive pe- people mm-hmm. who other people want to be around. Because then it's, like that's the easy part is people are bringing others in right into hopefully a community that helps people relax so that they can feel whatever they're resisting to feel, which is all part of our healing, right? They're just mm-hmm. pushing all this down. And when you get safe enough, right? That's why people go on vacation and get sick. <laughs> they go on vacation and, you know, deal with their issues because there's enough silence and margin and space where they're like, oh shit, here's all the shit I've been running from with my busy schedule. Wow. Same thing in community. If you can attract people into a safe place where it's fun, they can let their guard down, all of a sudden they're like, gosh, there are some things ugh, I might need to deal with. Like, I guess I am kind of hurt. I guess I am a little bit sad, you know? And and I would just take principles from what I would consider the Jesus sort of path. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
like I said, I'm not a Christian anymore, but what I love about being a Buddhist is it's less about beliefs. Um, it's about a path and a practice. So I would say I'm a Jesus, maybe if I'm still remotely, <laughs> uh, in part of that Christian world, I like some of the teachings, this overall narrative of benevolent living forgiveness, you know, sort of like transcending the small self. So I would take those principles and then just teach them in a way that I felt like would help people become um, healed, whole, safe, sort of like let go of their burdens, trust in a larger unfolding, which I think is an important part of whatever spirituality means to people. So yeah, yeah it just kind of worked. Yeah. And what was the point, that kind of crux point where you started realizing that some of the teachings you weren't not necessarily the teaching, but you weren't agreeing with certain things that were confined to maybe the box yeah. of Christianity. Like, and this is something I, I really respect about you is people who have the courage to not just like, you know, speak and honor the truth, but like live it. Yeah. And to, because I can just imagine the cultural, the pressure you must have felt to stick to this box that's kind of been paved out for you. Yeah. But, and you're like, I'm going to actually speak outside of this box. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that and what kind of yeah. led you to finally doing that? Yeah, for sure. So having already articulated that I never really fit well into the evangelical Christian world in the sense of like, again, I think I said this at the beginning, like my first house in astrology is Scorpio um, and with the planet Uranus. So that's on the level of, in the house of identity, I have this sort of like flip things over, look underneath the rug kind of. And even in Bible college, like I got in trouble all the time raising my hand, like this makes no sense. Like how could a loving guy, you know, and uh -huh. I would get in trouble constantly for asking questions, asking questions. So that's part of it. It's, yeah. That's my personality. And the more I became me, right, which is really what it means to grow up is to fully individuate into, out of all the conditioning, be who you are. Mm -hmm. So the more it became me, that was a part of it. The other thing was in the first few years of the church, it was growing so fast that I was living in the tyranny of the urgent. Like any entrepreneur who has rapid success, you can't do a ton of innovating. If you're growing so much, you just have to keep up with the orders or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we would have like a weekends where I like, we grew by a hundred people again this weekend, you know, like that's massive yeah. growth. So by the time we were like, Oh, maybe 2,500 people a weekend. I finally had, we had a facility. So we weren't setting up and tearing down like a road show for Jesus, like mm -hmm. sort of Metallica road show. That's like a huge thing to set up and tear down all the time. Yeah. It's like a festival. Um, but by the, by the time we had a building set up all the time, huge relief. Mm -hmm. Then I had a staff who was doing a bunch of stuff. So I, when I would go, I sat in my office and I was like, okay. I don't have to do any of that busy work. I'm not constantly worried about when we're going to meet or what gear is breaking or whatever. I have people to do that. And it finally gave me some space to go, okay, what do I want to say? And it was time to craft my message. Because for the first few years of doing this, like, like I told you, I was preaching my first sermons in my life. And most of my mentors who had, I, I was lucky enough, <laughs> I guess in some ways, depending on how you see it, to be mentored by these guys who had been pastoring massive churches around the country. So they mm -hmm. would take me under their wing because we were growing so fast. They saw potential opportunity in me and wanted to give back. And so they give me all their sermons they've ever done. Like I had a flash drive of this one guy's wow. like 30 years of sermons or whatever. And he's like, just use my stuff, throw in your own stories. Like, you know, so I'd use his outlines and, and that was great. It was super helpful. And it's like learning how to play guitar. Like I learned Nirvana first and whatever. And then I started writing my own songs. So by the time, we're in a building. I have a staff. I'm thinking about what I want to say. I don't need to use 
you know, all my mentor stuff. I'd be like, what do I want to say? And that's where I, I started getting off the rails. Mm. I started reading books I wasn't supposed to read. Like what's a book that you Well, just other religious yeah. perspectives, mm-hmm. you know? So, or integral philosophy or, or even just like much more liberal, open-ended perspectives on even just Christianity. Like people who are like supposedly heretics <laughs> within the Christian circle. And all that did was affirm all the misgivings and questions that I'd had my whole life about it. And so the truth was, I really wasn't that courageous for the first few years there because I had all these issues and I was like, oh, this is undermining my faith, Mm -hmm. undermining these agreements that I had made throughout my life to agree with what other people told me God meant, you know, agreements Mm -hmm. with, okay, this book says all the truth that's necessary. All of those were eroding. And so for a little while, I thought, oh, you know, this is sort of my dark night of the soul. Like, I'll be able to tell this great story about how I went through a difficult time and then my faith was refastened and, and you know, I can uh, give other people hope that just hang on. But the truth is, it got worse. It's the worse. opposite. Yeah. I mean, I read the Bible twice through in the same year all the way. And that really helped me face like, OK, this book isn't what I've been taught. It was and it has a lot of other problems that I need to deal with, mm-hmm. like any book that commands slavery in the Old Testament and condones it in the new is just wrong. (laughs) And so what do you do with that? You know, and, you know, go down those rabbit trails. But that's where it started. Mm -hmm. I started to get to slowly change internally, but I couldn't do it publicly because I was like, well, maybe I'll come through this season. So it was like a private suffering. Yeah. And and as I as I continued to become more me privately, but keep this public persona, I started getting more and more unhealthy. And I can, I mean, I can see it in the photos. Like our, we go through family photos sometimes. And it's like, in those years, you can see my body, just I'm getting more and more unhealthy because of the internal split. Wow. And I'm trying to hold these two disparate realities together. Um, and it just wasn't good for me. And eventually in about 2013, I realized like, I'm gonna have to start bringing forward this truth that that i think this is bigger than this something beyond christianity that i think even jesus whether he ever existed or not the narrative points at something that is true Mm -hmm. right like resurrection like death burial resurrection is a universal truth Mm -hmm. um it's like molecularly right atomically this is a reality of how the universe functions and But also, I don't necessarily think I believe that somebody walked on water or whatever. You know what I mean? Those kinds of Uh things. And uh, as I started to teach that stuff, that's when things started to get messy. You know, more and more people are like, where are you you at? And, you know, having issues with what I'm teaching. And my plan was to sort of drip it into the water slowly, like slowly poison everyone (laughs) with my... (laughs) Ended up just going straight into the deep end? Yeah, well, it's just not my style to be slow about it. Like I was Mm -hmm. ready to be like... To me, what I was going through was a liberation, and I wanted to help other people who were still living in a fear-based view of God. I wanted them to be released, which was a little naive (laughs) on my part, just because um, it's hard for people who are afraid to hear things that undermine the way they hold their reality together. Mm. And as soon as I started talking about how we have to change the way we view the Bible, like this isn't the word of God, this is a dangerous book if we start to think about it that way. then people started getting really upset, but it wasn't until we, and this is the time magazine thing that was, we were featured in, but until we made a formal statement of full 
and total acceptance, appreciation, and celebration of the LGBTQ plus community. That's when like the straw that broke the camel's yeah, back. Yeah, absolutely. Like shit just started to rain on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I hope, does that answer sort of like yeah? That? Okay. No, I I love it because I remember you told me a story. This was also I think on the Upworthy video, which I'll link in the show yeah, notes. Probably, yeah. But it was a uh, one of your staff members basically came out to yeah. you, right? Exactly. So the staff had been like I was always really open with them like way more open. And so they're very much aware of my journey and they're along for the ride in the sense of like, I mean, if people had problems, they would leave, you know, like mm-hmm. they were, we were all in this sort of like, I don't know, this own, this evolution that we were all going through. And, um, and we had been talking about the, this is before the Supreme court ruling in America. So it's a different yeah, this moment, is, right? Yeah. 2013, um, 2014, we're having a lot of these conversations. We're visiting affirming churches in Colorado that made a huge impact on me. Um, and just, you know, we're talking about these things. And my friend who was on staff at the time, she like was like, hey, I need to tell you guys, like, I'm in love with uh, Ayla, our, our, our mutual friend. And these two women were dating. And I was like, that's beautiful. Like, you guys are so amazing. And um, and then the response is like, well, she thinks you're going to fire her, you know. And that whole experience of me and my friend George, who were kind of leading the leadership team at that time, um, we just realized, like, people who can know us, know our process, know where we're at, and still be afraid that they're going to be fired for this means that in a church the size of ours, there are plenty of people who are feeling the same way. Like I can't get too close because if they find out I'm gay or whatever, maybe I won't be accepted here. Mm-hmm. And that was like a hard sort of stab in the heart for me to finally face that my silence wasn't like trying to be nice to the community and do it gently. It was, this could go badly. So let me see how slowly I can pull the bandaid off. So it doesn't make me uncomfortable. And that's when we decided to just rip that fucker off. And we're yeah. like, we just need to say it. And whatever happens, it's probably going to destroy the church. I mean, uh, there was a staff meeting where I told everybody, like, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to say it this clearly. And if you guys want to keep your jobs, you should vote me off this island right now because I'm going to destroy this thing. It's not going to go well. And it was like Spartacus. Like, everyone stood up like, well, Dad, I'm in. Let's yeah. do this, you know? That's so funny. So, which was cool. But mm-hmm. it also was like, okay, here we go. Like, this yeah. is going to be intense. And it was. It's interesting that you had the insight to know that it was going to crumble. You know, mm. because in which we'll dive into in a minute is mm. all what happened post. But yeah. it also speaks to, again, that same concept for me of like speaking and living your truth, even though you know the consequence, but that's what you truly believe and feel in your heart is right. Yeah. And it's kind of like the parallel too. if you see everything now with all the race issues we're experiencing in America. Yeah. It's yeah. not enough to just um, be like not be a racist, but you have to speak out against it. You have to be like actively anti-racist if you see it. And yeah. that's going to you know, give people the permission who are feeling like oppressed or not safe in their skin mm-hmm. to like be themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I would add that, you know, love is what changes people, you know? So you can have like high, high level, like ethics or some sort of like high moral standard for yourself, but that eventually willpower just drains. Like we're, we're wired to keep ourselves in our comfort zone but only love will make you go past the necessary you know, sort of like 
the the, the bare minimum. Love mm. is doesn't care about the rules. Love always exceeds the rules. It goes past what's expected because it's like it's love. Love is just self giving. It just like empties itself constantly because it's uh, to me it's a it's an infinite resource. Like mm. it's the most powerful yeah, force on the planet in the universe. Yeah. So it's not enough for us say whether it's with LGBT equality or it's with uh, issues of race will eventually tire if it's like, I should do this on behalf of whatever, black people, for instance. Shooting yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, no, go fall in love with people who are gay or black and brown individuals or Native Americans or whatever, indigenous people. Because if you love them, you're not going to have to figure out what your activism is going to look like. It will pour out of you because you're in love. And I think it's it's actually still easy for white people to come up with an activism plan because it still keeps you safe. You're not in love. It mm. won't break your heart and you can engage or disengage in your activism based on your level of comfort. But it, when you actually are in a loving relationship with a human being whose pain you feel because you're in love, there's nothing, there's no like task list as much as there is a, a, a reciprocal giving and receiving of like, of course I want this person's well-being instead of like, I should want these people's well-being and let me go make sure I've done enough protesting or whatever else that will drain mm -hmm. it, it will eventually you just tire. Yeah. Um, but love never tires. Oh, that's such a beautiful explanation. <laughs> I've never heard it explained like uh, that. Well, thank, I just, I, I'm just saying it because I, I want to be clear that what we did was less people have sort of congratulated me or whatever uh, about like what we've done. And, and I'm sure at some level there was some courage involved, right? I could have said no. But also I want to say it, it was actually my lack of courage that made it, me wait so long mm -hmm. to do it. But it was my love for this person that changed it. Like I could have, I, I was already affirming of the LGBT community before she came out to me. What changed? Yeah. Well, someone I was in a loving relationship with was finally, now it's not theoretical. Personal. Now we're not talking about black people anymore, right? We're yeah. talking about this person. We're talking about Ramal. Yeah. I'm not I'm talking about this group of people. I'm talking about this person I love. That changes everything. Mm. And and again, it, it takes less courage. And it just it's just an outpouring of like the relationship mm -hmm. requires this of me. Like, or, you know, tatua asi, like I am that, right? Um, when you're in those kinds of relationships, you're not trying to figure out how can I do things on behalf of my son. Like this is my son. Mm -hmm. Of course I care about my son Ace's experience in the world. So it's, it's, it's just less of a tasky thing to do for the sake of virtue. Mm -hmm. Because I, I worry sometimes, and especially in 2020, like people are so, especially white people, are so worried about being viewed as having virtues. Like mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not that kind of white person. Yeah. And my concern is that it um, that just tires people out. I mean, you can do that for a little while, but you'll mm -hmm. go home into your room and be like, God, I'm so tired of being virtuous. Yeah. Um, love, it, it, it covers. Everything. Yeah, that's why when you were saying that, I, I just got like goosebumps and I was feeling it because I think everyone has been in a situation where they're like, oh, I'm supposed to do this and I'm doing this because it's gonna make me look a certain way. Yeah, yeah. And you know it's draining. Like you yeah. can't, you can try and BS yourself, but yeah. in your truest truth, you know. Yeah. But the second you have that personal loving connection, mm -hmm. that's what's gonna drive you. That's totally. like, in, in, it's a pull. It's like not drive, it's like actually pulling you forward. Absolutely. And it helps you escape one of the traps of activism, which is angry activism. 
And, um, you know, we can get in an argument about parsing the semantics of that. I don't think anger in total is a negative thing. What I am saying is that the root of what motivates our work for justice in the world has to be love. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, we just know physiologically, like if you're just going to, if you're trying to get all your energy from your anger, um, you're poisoning your body with cortisol, first of all. Yeah. It's <laughs> just, just really actually physically toxic and unhealthy for you. But what really changes people, you know what changed me? Wasn't people yelling at me that I needed to affirm the LGBT community. That didn't change me. What changed me? I was in love with my friend. Mm -hmm. And I was, she's afraid. How can I alleviate her suffering? So that's what I mean. Like yeah. it's easier. It, it comes from a place of ease and identity when we do works of justice from a place of loving relationship mm -hmm. and it can last. It's sustainable. And that's what I'm interested in at this time when everyone's like, oh shit, at the very least we want to be appear uh, righteous and, you know, beautifully hearted. Um, but that just takes a lot more energy than be like, let's just fall in love. Mm -hmm. and, and then it's, just, it's sustainable and it helps other people change because I love this person. Let me offer these thoughts that are coming from love. That's so much more easy to hear from someone who's like, mm -hmm. you know, if people, somebody wants to explain surfing to me, for instance, to use something you're familiar yep. with, or you want to tell me why you love surfing, which one's going to inspire me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The Same love. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Love, love, love. It's just so much easier. Yeah. And one thing I did want to ask you is, even with all making that decisions, there is uh, not, well, yeah, there's a consequence, which is you're receiving death threats. Yeah. Um, but I'm actually more curious, how did you handle the people, not so much strangers, but people who maybe were friends with you, yeah. who then turned on you? Like, was that something challenging for you? Or? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, so how, would I, what do, how do I want to say this? I would say that yes is the short answer. It was hard for me. And yes, there were people who um, turned. I want to also couch this in compassion for them because there's a weird dynamic with with leaders and followers or that's that's a sounds like a really I, I hear what you're word, saying. But congregants or I guess people who are, I don't know, even employees and, and bosses. So there's always going to be a weird, unhealthy power dynamic there. Mm -hmm. You know, you can make it as healthy as possible, but there's a it's hierarchy. There. So any in any hierarchy, what leaders, teachers, people of position need to understand and not get so butthurt about. Like mm -hmm. I had to learn this because I took everything so personally. Another reason my son is in cancer. So I, I tend to take things personally and mm -hmm. I'm really emotionally. Uh, I have a wide <laughs> breadth of emotional experience, but when you're in a high position of authority, it's hard for people to relate to you uh, as peer, as a peer. Mm -hmm. And when people come to a religious community, especially at least this is my experience in, in large megachurch evangelicalism, is they had sort of outsourced spirituality at some level to me. And mm -hmm. I embodied for them what they want to do and be in the world. And so when I changed, it forced them to go, oh shit, like, do am i is that where i'm at so i'm not saying people should outsource their belief to a leader in fact i'm a big anti-guru like you are the guru the only conception of the universe that matters is yours mm -hmm. you gotta live with it right but this is just the dynamic that's at yeah. play so in some ways it was really good for people as i began to change it forced people to ask what the fuck do i think yes right and that creates some chaos and so i guess i'm trying to say compassionately like i started an italian restaurant and in 
over 10 years, I had changed. And all of a sudden I started serving burgers. Yeah. And so for people to get upset and leave the restaurant, it's, I don't have anything negative to say about these people. Yeah. I stopped serving what I used to serve, which was, as I told you, sort of this liberal, um, practical, very Christian based way to live well in community. And I started changing that and I started widening that. And so people who left, maybe they left angry, but I know that was out of fear and like this, their own stuff. So to get to it after using that bit of saying, love you, love you, love you to everybody who left, even people who left angry. The way I dealt with that at first was just pain. It just hurt Mm. because it would come with accusations. A lot of people would try to meet with me and they want to yell about Bible verses and how like, I was leading people to hell, you know, by, by Yeah, because on the comments of this video, just yeah. to chime in, I'm like, I watch your video and I'm just like, my man, like yeah. you're standing up for so many people. Yeah. And then the comments are just shitting on you, yeah, dude. totally. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. But it's also, dude, I, I mean, I grew up Jewish. Yeah. My parents weren't super religious. Um, so I don't have a strong religious worldview. Yeah. I've, you know, I identify as maybe a spiritual person. I don't have like one thing. But then I'm like, wow, these people have grown up. This is like indoctrinated and not saying that even in a bad way but like that's uh how they're viewing the world so you're just totally challenging that right and then they were getting ripping you to shreds on these comments yeah so you know it's funny about that video too is i was i had that week i got an x-ray this is when i ended up going through cancer so i didn't know in that video that i think you said upworthy yeah in that video i am full cancer Wow. Yeah. And you knew you, you had cancer? See it you knew- I was super sick and I didn't know that. You didn't like know you had cancer. Two weeks later, I found out. That wow. I so anyway, funny thing about that video. I remember watching that video. Like somebody showed it to me maybe a year ago. They're like, hey, have you seen this? I'm like, of course I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, oh my God, look how sick I am. You know? Yeah. Um, one comment I would make about that is that um, there's two ways of holding beliefs. One is to hold them like a toolbox. Like I use, these are useful for things. The other is to hold them on the level of identity. When people hold beliefs on the level of identity and anyone offers information that's counter to that, they feel attacked. Mm-hmm. So that's the hard part about fundamentalism when it's like, you know, that the world is being driven crazy from by the notion, my religion alone is right, right? We're all mm-hmm. aware of this, but that's the problem of fundamentalism. And so there's no way to hold a differing viewpoint in the consciousness of fundamentalism. And so the only opportunity is to defend self, like you're wrong and I'm right, or attack this thing that's dangerous, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, I, I certainly learned a lot about uh, the way people hold beliefs and how belief functions. And and uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, it was hard at first for sure. So on that note, I just have to ask this question before yeah. we go into the cancer, because yeah, yeah. I'm fascinated by that. Like, you know more about, I guess, people and beliefs from an experiential standpoint than probably most people just from your experiences. Yeah, probably. And if you look at the way society is now, if you've seen the social dilemma, like we're a very black and white society, which totally. is kind of scary. It um, is. Yeah, it's not working well. How do you think people can um, transcend that? And so I guess what I'm saying, how do you get people to get out of that belief identity to just be open to the fact that what if I'm wrong? Like, how do you change someone just so they're open and not thinking their way is the only way. And if not, screw you. Mm, Yeah. Good question. Important question. So much to say there. I think one is, let me just, let me just harp on the, the phrase change someone. 
I just, one, I don't, I think the soon as we, the sooner we let go of the need to change anyone, the better, because mm. one, it'll reduce our own suffering. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, I rarely change by external pressure. Um, again, I'll go, I'll just be hitting this. Love is the most transformative energy in the world. So, you know, since those years, I've had people come back via email or in person or run into somebody at a restaurant or a Starbucks or something. And people who like shredded me through like a long letter or essay they wrote or, or you know, whatever. People had like blogs about me and all this thing because I was just spawn of Satan, you know. But I've had people since reach out to me, many people, uh, and be like, hey, I was wrong. And I think one of the most important things I taught my staff was because at the time all this was going down, like all of us were fielding like, hey, I need to take you to coffee and I need to talk to you. So everyone was having confrontational conversations and I'd always coach the staff. I said, leave the door open. No matter what happens, don't try to keep people. If they feel like they need to leave to be in integrity with themselves, thank them for all the time they spent as part of the community and bless them on their way out and leave the door open. Mm. right and even if they want to slam it just be like look totally understand we love you if you ever come back or you ever we run into each other at the mall someday like just want you to know love and i think that's so important because even while people were thrashing me in the middle of a starbucks you know pointing out bible verses that you know i didn't really care about <laughs> like, yeah i disagree with that verse you know i don't know what to tell you i can see this is hard for you um but i got to be like hey um release the need to change them. I don't need to consume them into my worldview because that's still fundamentalist thinking. I see this all the time with people who leave evangelical Christianity, but stay evangelical in their way of holding beliefs. Mm -hmm. It's like they're now evangelical atheists or whatever. I'm like, you haven't left actually. You've just traded the content of your beliefs with different content, but you hold your beliefs the same. And that's the real problem. It wasn't the beliefs. Who cares what what the beliefs are? Your beliefs will change as you grow in age and you know, mm-hmm. your beliefs visit you based on your life circumstance and your experiences and the relationships you have. But the way you hold your beliefs, that you can cultivate. Mm-hmm. And so when we work with people, one, we release the need to change them, which softens the exchange big time. If I don't need you to become me in the conversation, I can just honor where you're at in full mm-hmm. loving acceptance. And I feel that I can relax. Yes. Like, oh, you're, you don't have an agenda here. Exactly. And it, and it's going to trigger some people mm-hmm. who don't live in that consciousness because they're like, well, I need you to be where I'm at, but you don't need me to be where you're at. Like yeah. they don't know what to do with that because uh-huh. you have to live in that space of the heart first before you can feel that openness and that expansive sort of non-judgmental acceptance. So back to your question, I think it begins with releasing the need to change anyone, beginning by changing yourself. And I think for those people who are at least interested in transcending the polarity of all of our conversations these days, um, and this is a personal soapbox issue for me, like I'm big on this one. I think that, I wanna say this this way. I think that what scares people more than anything is to live without conclusion. And what I mean by that is no one knows what the hell's going on. And there are a lot of people who think they do. And 
I would just say beware of those people because they probably have a small monthly fee that they would like to charge you to get the truth. <laughs> Nobody knows what the hell is going on. Even science doesn't know what to do with the hard problem of consciousness. We don't know what it is, right? So like the, the, the field through which we even do science is consciousness and we don't know what it is. So here's what that means. <laughs> we don't know what the fuck is going on. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we're going. We don't know where we came from. There are a lot of theories out there. And because that's scary to live without conclusion, without closure, without certainty, people are become susceptible. Because of that fear, anything to calm the body down, to calm the mind down, is better than that uncertainty. Mm. So just like a child, we need to be consoled because we can't go to sleep. I'm scared about all these things. And um, so it, we become susceptible to cults. We become, to, we become susceptible to um, autocratic leaders. Because anybody who says, I know what's going on and I know what we must do, mm -hmm. makes some people feel better. Yeah. Like, okay. So it's like, I think it's Eric Hoffer who wrote The True Believer. But it's basically like, we give ourselves to people or ideas that seem like they're in control or will or will be in control or do have the, the truth. Mm -hmm. And we're just a lot easier, easier to control that way. Mm -hmm. So in a world of all this like black and white, you're either, you're either like pro-vax or anti-vax, yeah, you know, or you're like, you're either a Democrat or a racist, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> you're either Hitler himself <laughs> or, you know, I just, these polarities are so unhelpful because no one is actually fits in those boxes and these sort of big generalizations, they're not promoting dialogue. Um, there's no nuance to it. Mm. So for people who want to continue to open, right, and to be able to be space holders for a culture and a world that uh, soon will have no other option but just all out war because there's there's no meeting anywhere there's no conversation anymore it's just like canceling and writing off and walling across things like this so if people are like i want to open more you're going to have to get more and more comfortable with yeah. your unknowing mm -hmm. and this is what all the mystics teach us like it's yeah. just the emptying of yourself i mean i don't know what's going on and that's just a lot harder than okay i reject perhaps my religion my religious upbringing and then they just glom onto some new belief system that does the same thing that the old thing did. Mm -hmm. They feel like they've evolved. Like, oh, fuck that shit. I'm not whatever a Christian anymore to use my uh, story. Now I'm hardcore scientific CrossFit materialist. Yeah, <laughs> you vegan, know? whatever. I'm a vegan CrossFit, you <laughs> yeah. know. And they hold those things, these convictions as this is the truth. Mm -hmm. And if you're not in my team, like you're wrong or whatever. Yeah. These are the things that need to go. Yeah, it's so funny. I remember what that just spurred us. I remember this gal, she's vegan and like generates zero waste. Hmm. And like wow. it was she was so passionate and so like not pushy about it. She inspired me to generate less waste and like research more about veganism yeah. as opposed to so many other people who are like, if you're eating meat, you're you're a fucking killer and you yeah. should be ashamed. I'm like, wow, um, which one is going to inspire me more to be a vegan? Exactly. You know, it's crazy that people still think this is a motivational move. Like, yeah, this guilt it tripping. Work. Yeah, it just doesn't function. Uh -huh. Even if someone does it out of guilt, that's not a sustain. Like they'll give up because mm -hmm. guilt won't sustainably 
move you into new behaviors. It doesn't yeah. change anything fundamentally about who you are. And if we don't change at the level of identity, the change isn't going to last. It's just on the outside. We're just putting on the jacket of veganism. I'm a vegan. Yeah. I want to make sure you can see how vegan I am. Well, eventually it's like, yeah, that's, I don't care. Uh -huh. Yeah. Because I'm not any different. Mm -hmm. And real transformation is inside out. Yeah. And this was a perfect segue into from uncertainty. I've started talking more on my podcast of just psychedelics because it's changed my life. Like, I don't know how else yeah. to say it. Um, I shared my ayahuasca healing journey and I believe that's really set me forward on my healing journey mm -hmm. with my body going through the Lyme and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I know this is a big space you're into. And so I wanted to talk to you. What was the first time? Um, I know you had a mentor get you into psychedelics. What was the first time and what role has psychedelics played in your life? Yeah. Um, so when I was, um, <laughs> what I thought was losing my faith was me trying to protect what was left of my faith or my beliefs in Christianity. And so I, I use, sometimes use the metaphor that like, you know, I had the sandcastle of my faith. These are my beliefs, right? Jesus is the son of God and the Bible is the word of God. And Jesus died on the cross for my sins and everyone, whatever. And you got to believe these things. Well, what happened with life and education and loving relationships with Hindus and gay people and all that is the tide of all of that loving relationship and experience came in and it began to wash away the castle. I was not kicking that fucker down. Hmm. I was laying in front of the ocean of experience going, oh shit, <laughs> it's gonna destroy this whole thing. And by mm -hmm. the time the whole sand castle washed away, I like I went through this like void of like, I don't know who I am. I don't mm -hmm. know how, what what is the world? What is the nature of reality? Because everything that gave me a sense of meaning in the world had been washed away and that's why i have a lot of compassion for people who are like going through a deconstruction phase like i'm not interested in ripping people's beliefs away from them that's violent like because that's how they make sense of the world and so as that was happening for me one of the places i landed that gave me a sacred way to view the universe was uh evolutionary spirituality mm -hmm. And there's a guy who sort of lived and taught and wrote in that world named Bruce Sanguin, who became a mentor and a friend to me, uh, who himself had gone through a healing journey with psychedelics. And um, is this pre-cancer or post-cancer? This is both. It's pre okay. when we I'm connecting and connecting with evolutionary spirituality, um, which is basically, I should probably define that, is a way of a sacred telling of the universe story that we know from science. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's not centered around, you know, metaphysical beliefs that you can neither prove or disprove. It's looking at here's what we know about the universe based on our best understanding using the scientific method, which of course is always changing. <laughs> yeah. But, but saying like, based on what we know, we need a way of telling this that gives us a meaning story because human beings, I mean, we're meaning makers. So what's the narrative? How do I find my place in this larger unfolding? How do I tell in a way that inspires me? Because religion offers us three things. The ability to look to the past with gratitude instead of regret. That's a necessary feeling state human beings need to thrive, right? I need to look to the past beyond regret and go, oh gosh, you know, I have gratitude for this. The ability to look to the future with hope instead of despair. That's a necessary feeling state for human thrival. And then to the ability to live in the present with inspiration for whatever you're currently facing. That's what religion offers. So when in the vacuum of that, let's say, you know, I believe in science, right? Like someone like me, I mean, I do. Mm -hmm. But just explaining molecular structure doesn't help me look to the path of gratitude. So how do you tell that stuff? How do you fit human life 
into a narrative arc of 14.5 billion years in a universe that's expanding in every direction at the speed of light in a way that offers us a way to live with a high ethic and to, mm -hmm. to motivate us for love. That's evolutionary spirituality. So mm. having defined that, I met this guy named Bruce, brilliant guy. I'm finding ways to express myself and my sense of spirit or whatever God means in a way that doesn't make me feel like I'm assassinating my brains. Like, okay, the nature of reality is this. Here's what I'm learning from physics, et cetera. And I can find a sacred way to tell that. And eventually he says, hey, you, you know, you should really, it's time for ayahuasca for you. And mm -hmm. that was like, what? And you had never done like uh, mushrooms or anything prior? I had done, I mean, I had certainly smoked and sold weed in high school and yeah. mushrooms and stuff like that, but always on like what most people talk about, like goofing off with friends or camping or whatever. Never, never being like, I'm doing this with the intention of opening my heart or deepening my spirit or my connection to, again, God or ultimate reality source or even, uh, you know, um, healing mm. in some sense, like some sort of like a therapeutic yep. modality. Can speak to that. <laughs> so uh, actually, the first thing I ended up doing was a, a high dose mushroom sit mm -hmm. uh, and where he sat for me and um, <laughs> I guess... The big shift that happened in that experience, it's hard to describe unless you've gone from not doing psychedelics to doing high dose psychedelics, not just like, you know, smoking a joint or having a mushroom, a cap and a stem at a concert, you know, with the Grateful Dead, which, hey, we've done that. That's <laughs> Power I'm, too, a yeah. big, I'm a big, I love doing that too. But I went from this sort of like evolutionary spirituality, scientific materialist to like, I don't know anything. That's what psychedelics helped me live without closure. Mm -hmm. I was like, I have no idea what's going on. Because once you experience altered states of consciousness, which I'd experienced in other ways, like um, sort of like music, for instance, has always spoken to me. And I will enter different states playing with my bands or friends, singing, wow. or um, just being in a huge arena with people and feeling that connective energy of like us, the we space. I'm like, that you transcend something that's smaller in you but never like I had in high dose psychedelics. And it made me realize like, I don't know what's really going on here. Um, and that felt sense in the medicine of deep abiding peace, like where you could confront your fears, your pains, your hangups, your habits, your dysfunction. And simultaneously while admitting and looking at those things in the medicine, you could feel the sense of like everything being ordered for your own development and growth. Like if the, if the universe is a process of infinite becoming of which I am one particular unique manifestation rising and falling like a wave in the sea, then everything's working out. Okay. And you can sort of live in that tension. And that's what the medicine offered me. And when I came out of that, I was like, there's gotta be so much more. And hmm. I'm just sort of, I don't know. It's like, uh, what would be a metaphor for that? It's like, I don't know. I felt like I walked on the moon. Like, like there's so much more to learn now. Like mm -hmm. the universe just quadrupled in size, you know, to put it lightly. So from there it was, you know, I did ayahuasca and then uh, LSD and um, five MEO DMT or Bufo, you know, the toad. Um, and my wife and I have sort of, you know, been spending the last few years like using these tools for spiritual development and growth and, mm -hmm assessing you know where we need to change and and even my connection to spirit which I, I i credit psychedelics for liberating me from my sort of closed-minded scientific materialism where i went from i knew 
some answers like, you know, Christianity worked for me pragmatically into, I don't believe any of that stuff anymore. All we can know is like atoms and molecules and synapses, and this is all an accident and just deal with it kind of a thing. Psychedelics sort of reopened everything and my unknowing just included everything instead of like, oh, who knows what's going on, but we do know science. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, <laughs> actually, we don't know shit. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. I don't need to go evangelize everyone to be like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was real freeing. Isn't that the wild paradox? It makes you okay. The uncertainty of the experience makes you okay with mm-hmm. uncertainty. Yeah. In your everyday life. Well, because, I, and I think part of that is because the part that needs certainty is the ego. And the ego is like a really hard taskmaster. So when we live from ego mind instead of from heart, um, there's just the function of the ego is to solve problems. So mm-hmm. even without problems, the ego is going to invent problems to solve to keep itself employed. And psychedelics show you that like there's a whole level of consciousness that's available to us as an innate space we can live in that doesn't have all that anxiety. Yeah. And you're just like, hey, things are going to be okay. And, and you know. Not to just jump to the cancer experience, but that's it echoed my experience in cancer because once I had to face the potential of my own death Mm -hmm. at a young age. How old were you when you found out you had cancer? um, So 2017, so about 40. Wow. So um, it was, I just stopped, I spent so much time in the land of belief. Like I have these beliefs. I don't have these beliefs. These are true. These are not, you know, trying to cultivate some, like, what is the world and where am I at? You know? Um, And cancer was like, (laughs) just slap me in the face. Like you're going to die. So in light of that, what matters? And I feel like almost every day I'd wake up realizing like, you know, this phrase that I tattooed on my hands, you know, life is a gift. Love is the point. That's the only thing I can know. Like, like this is amazing. This is an amazing experience. Like watching the trees turn color is amazing. Watching waves crash in the ocean is a beautiful thing. Watching a child come into the world is a miracle. Like this is a gift. And that posture of gratitude is healthy for me. So I know that life is a gift. Mm. And then love is the point. Like the only way to breathe my last breath with satisfaction, to just exhale in gratitude, like thanks for letting me do this to the universe would be to know that I gave all the love I could give and all the rest of it. Like, well, what do I believe about God and and what, what religion is right or wrong or whatever? All of that just sort of paled because Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know if I have another year or six months or seven years or 40 years, but either way that day is coming, whether I die of cancer or old age. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I learned from that was, you know, as you know, when illness strikes, there's this little bit of sense of betrayal, like your own body betrayed you. You're like, fuck, dude, what are you doing? Like, we're body. How could you do we this to bros, me? Dude. And it feels like, oh, you realize I want to die on my own terms mm-hmm. when you get sick. You're like, oh, fuck you, man. I like I want to call the shots on this. And when you start, it, it begs the question, well, how do you want to die? Because you knew you were going to die before. What's the problem now? The problem now is I want to decide on what terms I die. So then you begin to ask the question, or at least I did. It's like, well, how do I want to die? And I thought about it. I was like, I want to die surrounded by the people that I love, expressing to them, thank you. Like, I love you. Thank you for being in my life. I hope 
that you, that I, I hope that I reflected your beauty back to you. And that's how I want to die. And what's really cool about that is once you define how you want to die, you find out that's the answer to how you want to live. And if you can live expressing love to others, you find out you don't need to be right. You don't need to be right about politics or religion or the solutions to poverty or all you can do is just be like, look, I'm so grateful to breathe this next. Here I am back again to take another breath. Gratitude for that. And then I hope that I spend my time giving the love that I have to give, you know, and that's, that's really it. Like, and psychedelics have helped with that. Facing your own death helps with that. Um, and I don't think that that makes you complacent. Like then you never get involved in activism, mm -hmm. or whatever. That's sort of the critique or whatever. Like, no, because if you haven't arrived at love is the point, if you haven't arrived at how do I give of my essence, which I believe to be love, thank you 5-MeO-DMT for showing me, I think, what I am, where I come from, and where I will return to, which is this sort of infinite ocean of perfection and love and light, um, then you'll be motivated to, to do whatever is yours to do. We can't solve all the problems in the world. In fact, that'll just, you know, just lead to burnout or anger or bitterness or whatever else. There is some way for you to serve that actually fuels you. But you can't do what this person's job is to do in the world because that's just going to drain you. You're going to find a way to express the love you came here to express that doesn't destroy you like that's not the universe isn't asking you to destroy yourself on behalf of someone else's passion right mm. but there is a passion for you where you're supposed to engage in redemptive work in the world that will come from love that will express itself through love and that will fuel you with more of it yeah mm -hmm. and if we can get to that space i think that's what mitigates the like well if that's all it is then we're never going to address the problems in the world or whatever. And that's not my experience. The more mm -hmm. I fall into love, the more I fall into waking up in gratitude, deep bow to, I don't even know what. Is it God? Is it source energy? Is it a universe? Is it nothingness? I don't know. I don't even care. <laughs> bow to it. Like, here I am. I don't have the, I don't have the answers, but I am grateful. Mm -hmm. So to whom it may concern, right, every morning, Thank, Thank you. you for life, for love, for the beauty of the ocean and the sun that's coming through this window and the ability to share this uh, exchange with you today across this table. Deep out of that and let everything that's in me that is not in service to love leave. Mm -hmm. I release it, you know, and of course that's a practice or whatever. And all I'm saying is you will engage in redemptive ways when you live in that space, but it will come from a natural, intuitive like, I don't know, dude, you're just flowing in God. And to, you can take, again, to use that word, and I, of course, have long, wide explanations of what that word means, but opportunities will present themselves for you to give yourself mm -hmm. instead of we got to solve the problems of the world, which is this really like sort of controlling, very masculine, I would add. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to fit. I know what needs to be fixed and I know how to fix it. A lot of times we go after what we think is evil in the world and we end up creating evils. Look at the way we, you know, are warmongering all across the earth as, as the United States of America trying to be, bring justice to all these countries. Um, we're bringing a lot of pain and evil with us as we exterminate evil wherever we see it. Um, mm. Same thing is true of like our engagement for redemptive activity. It, it, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to a deep 
question of do I trust that becoming love will cultivate the kind of person I need to be in order to live into the redemptive work I incarnated here to engage in, for instance. Okay, first, that was like the most epic however many minutes I think I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, interrupt me all no, the time, I, Dude, you were, God was flowing through you in the last, I don't know, however minutes. So thank you for that. Good, yeah. Second, I think the point you made there is so clear, and I've, I've struggled with that in my own, is like I'll look at someone who's super calm and present, and I'm almost scared of it as yeah. coming from a, a pattern which has been for many parts of my life, like very driven. I need to know the next thing, like a yeah. very masculine. I mean, like it comes back to like what you said, do I trust that coming from this place of presence will unfold the next path to me? And that doesn't mean I'm going to be living my life as a passive individual, mm -hmm. but yeah. I have, I, like you said, it's coming just from a different place. Totally. I think that's huge. And the way you explain that, I think a lot of people, I mean, I've talked with a lot of friends and I went through that same thing. I think that's a a big um, roadblock on this path to maybe spirituality, if you will. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Even that's defining a term. Maybe it's something more encompassing, but whatever that is for people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we do that out of a deep sense of um, in instability in our lives. We're, there's this anxiety that we're not okay or that we're not good enough or whatever the deep core unconscious beliefs that we, that we uh, you know, collected through growing up mm -hmm. the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune as the poet Rilke would say and because of that we find ways to cope with that and some of that is like how do i be we can't be present because we're constantly anticipating negativity mm -hmm. some rejection failure someone doesn't like me i don't fit into the group whatever and so until those things are cleared out mm -hmm. until we're like those are beliefs that you know, I got for a reason, like, right? My sister told me I was ugly when I was four. And for some reason, I'm fucking obsessed with worried about how people view me or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or my, one of mine would like, when I was a kid, I remember I found a thing on the bus. These girls were rating all the guys on the bus. And I, mine was that my nostrils were too big. And my nostrils are larger than the average, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> and I carried that with me for so long. Yeah. And it's, so that's a silly example, but, you know, it's hard to be present with others if we have yet to be present with ourselves. Mm. And so I think a lot of that just comes from, you know, until we can sit down and my definition of love would be full presence and perception without judgment. So, so fully here, taking in this, right? With no need to fix it mm. and no need to judge it. Not even for good, not even judging the good things. Mm -hmm. Like, cause if you're pointing out all the good things, you're still judging. Mm. It's just like full presence, full perception, taking in and like saying yes to that. Mm. Like Jake, this is Jake. Yes to all of that. Like that's love. <laughs> Dude, I think I could talk with you for five hours straight. <laughs> um, man, uh, thank you. Yeah. Hey, man, like, thanks for inviting me. This has been, I definitely would love to have you on again because there's yeah. so many things I wanted to dive into yeah. with you. Yeah, no, dude, um, But first, where, where can people find you online? Where can they connect with you? Um, I do have a website. It's called, it's loveisthepoint.com. And that's sort of, it's just a sort of a business card on there where I, because uh, I do spiritual direction, um, interfaith spiritual direction and non-faith spiritual direction, which if you're not familiar with that is like, it comes from the Catholic tradition, but it's basically sort of, spiritual companionship for people as they sort of work out 
whatever their worldview is, however they make meaning. It doesn't have to be religious. For instance, I have a lot of friends who are agnostic, but I do spiritual direction with them as a way of connecting them to how do I feel alive in my life mm-hmm. and live out of a sacred ethic in my heart. So that's what I do on there, lovesapoint.com. And then, um, you know, psychedelic integration and some of that other stuff I do through there. And then that's it. Uh, but then I guess I'm on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we'll link to that. And one thing I will say is from the psychedelic integration, we didn't dive too much into that. Yeah, yeah. But in my experience, then you know, obviously, and I'm going to put a disclaimer just at the beginning of the show, just because I feel like I got to do that these yeah, days. Yeah. But, you know, set and setting and being feeling like you're safe with the person guiding is so oh, important. Yeah. And without a trace of doubt, dude, you hold that space. Oh, and I think that's a special thing. And like, I'm very um, discerning about who I will put myself in that situation Mm -hmm. with, especially Mm -hmm. if it's a high dose because it's Mm -hmm. a sacred space and you're letting go of control. Mm -hmm. And to have someone like you guiding would be a gift. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And my greatest honor in life is to sit with people in total truth because Mm -hmm. that's the great thing about high dose psychedelics is like you're going to be in truth. (laughs) (laughs) You can try to resist, but it will hurt until you you let go. But there's nothing more beautiful. You know, to see, to witness that person, to witness, like sometimes I can, you know, we can talk about this another time, but I was just going to say that when you can see in someone's face that a real, the truest yearning of their heart is coming through, whether it's in a sob or a facial expression, like, I think that's the most beautiful thing in the world, no matter how painful maybe it is, Mm -hmm. because that's fucking true. Like when grief comes through, through high dose psychedelics, you're like, there, there she is, or there he is. There, the bat little soul that sits in that room all alone in that chair that's living with themselves, talking to themselves all the time. There's a room we all live in, and sometimes we never let anyone in. We live our whole lives alone in there, but sometimes we do let people in. And in high dose psychedelics, people open that door, and you get to see them, and to be able to shower that little light with like, you're okay, you are loved, you are you know just fine. Like that's a real gift. Wow. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, thank you, bro. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks I'm excited for, for I'm excited for many more conversations to for come. Sure. And that just fueled me up. So <laughs> me too. Wow. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Ryan Meeks as much as I did. As you can see, he is truly an incredible human being, not just for what he's done, but how he lives and how he bees and just his overall philosophy. If you connected with him and this interview resonated with you, make sure to let him know and give him some feedback. You can find him on Instagram, which is linked here in the show notes, or ryantmeeks.com or loveisthepoint.com. And last but not least, if you find the show valuable and you're enjoying it, it would mean so much to me if you took 30 seconds and left a quick review on iTunes. Thank you so much and happy new year to everyone. And I'll see you next week.